This is Ron Stockton. There's a term I learned a couple of years ago from the learning specialists on my campus. Uh, it's the term is meta learning. It's it's an effort to understand how it is that we learn. Basically, we're looking at ourselves. I think this is very relevant to the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Anyone who teaches about the Middle East, especially the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, knows how challenging and exciting and difficult that can be. Because the conflict is always in the headlines, and because of its importance in world affairs, it is a topic that students find fascinating. But teaching this material presents pedagogical problems almost unique to the topic. Only on issues such as race and gender does one encounter comparable levels of psychological resistance. It is as if some students begin with the answers and are looking for facts to reinforce their preconceptions. There are a mix of reasons for this situation, but one explanation lies in modes of cultural thinking. Several concepts can help us make sense of this phenomenon and suggest possible ways around it. Three concepts are those of history, memory, and myth. Uh, The historian David Blight, who specializes in the Civil War, says history is a reasoned reconstruction of the past rooted in research. It tends to be critical and skeptical of human motive and action, and therefore more secular than what people commonly refer to as memory. History can be read by or belong to everyone. It assesses change and progress over time and is therefore more relative, more contingent upon place, chronology, and scale. That's history. In contrast, memory is often treated as a sacred set of potentially absolute meanings and stories, possessed as the heritage or identity of a community. Memory is owned. History is interpreted. The word owned is particularly significant. Discussing history is an analytical process. A discussion of memory is a contentious battle zone. A concept parallel to memory is that of myth. The scientific word myth does not refer to something made up, which is how we commonly use it, but to a simplified version of the contradictory and painful events of the past. Myth helps us extract meaning so as to understand what happened in a way that is palatable to our psyche and gives us a vision of what to do in the future. One useful definition is is the following. Myths are accounts bearing upon the origin and nature of the world's proper order and upon actions that conform to and thus realize that order and as such are moral or that violate and undo that order and are therefore immoral. Blight once again has written that in the aftermath of the Civil War, Americans, particularly those in the South, created the myth of the lost cause. This myth held that the South had not been fighting to fragment the nation or to keep Africans in slavery, but for principles and honor. And preserve, to preserve states' rights and to protect local autonomy. In other words, they had been fighting for the Constitution. This myth had two subtexts. First, if everyone was fighting for the Constitution, North and South, 
then everyone was on the same side and the war was really an unfortunate misunderstanding provoked by extremists that everyone agrees did not have the common good at heart. Second, if the real issues were principle and honor, then the war had nothing to do with slavery, which, according to this myth, everyone agreed was bad, even Robert E. Lee. Therefore, the war had nothing to do with the role of Africans in American society or the status of black citizens in the aftermath of the war. The consequence of this myth was that national unity was restored among whites at the sacrifice of black rights. This follows the 19th century French French writer Ernst Renan, who argued that uniting a nation sometimes involves not only forgetting, but outright fabrication. We might also add that unity sometimes involves exclusion or even domination of those not considered within the fold of that unification. So let me quote something from Ernst Renan. Forgetting, I would even go so far as to say historical error, is a crucial factor in the creation of a nation, which is why progress in historical studies often constitutes a danger for the principle of nationality. Now, he was talking about Germany. He was talking about Italy. How do you unite these countries? There's been so much internal division. You have to just pretend, no, those, little, those were little exceptions. We really were one people all along. You have to create a, a myth of that, which basically ignores reality. Myth and memory lead logically to narrative. Most of us carry narratives around in our heads, especially where formative or sensitive or controversial historical events are concerned. If you're unclear on this, go to any uh, fifth grade class the week before Thanksgiving and see what is on the wall. Anyone teaching or speaking on the Middle East will encounter the fact that many people have narratives or meta-narratives that explain a problem in a way that, as they see it, is perfectly clear. These narratives are hypercharged by the fact that the region is in an ongoing turmoil and that there are interested religio-ethnic or national groups whose blood relatives and psyche are, and religious identities are caught up in daily events. To involved persons, interpretation is directly linked to identity and to future outcomes. Any person of goodwill and intellectual balance is expected to repeat the narrative or at least confirm it. The narrative reassures the adherent that their side is just, their cause is right, the other rascals are the problem, and history as they understand it is being correctly interpreted. As in a religious pageant, people said expectantly as the narrative unfolds, waiting for the next point to be made. If you miss a point or misstate it, you will be corrected or will at least cause distress. Ideologues will question your neutrality and suspect you of bias or of supporting the other side by misinterpreting truth. Meaning is imposed upon fact so that the omission of a fact is seen as a distortion of truth. A few years ago at a conference on advocacy in the classroom, I said that teaching about the contemporary Middle East is, in a neutral and balanced way, generates a situation of unintended advocacy. By not making the points that the involved audience wants you to make, you appear to be an advocate for some other position. You will often be told that you didn't make this point, or what about the other point of view? 
These are not necessarily disagreements with you, with what you said, but distress at what you didn't say, i.e. the part that makes it clear which side is right. The questions may also contain an implicit accusation that you intentionally omitted a key fact to distort the conclusions. Americans, not to mention Israelis and Arabs, often think that whoever has the best argument wins. Of course, this is not true. Many people with justice and logic on their side have been swept from the pages of history. But when you question or even omit someone's narrative, you are in a sense challenging their core values, since our identity is tied up in our myths. Three narratives are the most relevant to Americans who teach or lecture on this topic, or I should say, our student, or and I should say, our students. For lack of better terms, I call these narratives evangelical, Jewish nationalist, and Arab nationalist. It goes without saying that many individuals from within those rather broad groups would not accept all points in the group's narrative. And I should mention two things uh, before I start on these narratives. One is that in, in many cases, people view Jews as being out of history. That is, the, the Nazis had a very unpleasant term, the eternal Jew, but that's not what we're talking about. You'll hear people say, oh, this was Ishmael and Isaac fighting as they always have. Or this is 2,000 years. They've been fighting for 2,000 years. Or look at this text. This is exactly what we know to be true. That's not history. That's not political science. The evangelical narrative is outlined in my article on Christian Zionism, which you can find on Deep Blue on the internet. Just Google my name and, and walking between raindrops, you'll find it. It has to do with biblical prophecy, the return of Christ, the Hebrew covenant, the American national covenant, and the creation of a Jewish state in Palestine in 1948. Simply put, it holds that the creation of Israel was a divinely pre-planned and pre-revealed event, integrally linked to the fulfillment of human destiny. God's final divine intervention in history on behalf of humanity will happen within the lifetime of that generation alive in 1948, or 1967 by some interpretations. Um, in contrast to previous Christian or European historical theology about Jews and history, the evangelical narrative is philo-Semitic, that means pro-Jewish, in that it sees the Jews as a group faithful to their divine covenant and playing a central role in the fulfillment of human history. Those who oppose Israel or the Jews are positioning against God's will and are wrong. The narrative is is very patriotic in an American sense, but it sees American nationalism and Jewish nationalism as running on parallel tracts with parallel covenants linked to God's will. Americans of goodwill must support Israel and the Jewish people in seeking their national destiny, lest they compromise their own welfare. Those of this tradition work closely with Jewish nationalists, especially those on the Israeli right. Um, let me just make two points before we go on to the next uh, narrative. Uh, first is that uh, evangelical Christians are pre-millennial. That is, they believe there'll be a thousand years of just justice on earth. 
once Christ returns. But they're premillennial in that they believe that Christ must return before anything happens. This is different from postmillennialists. There were people who believed that you can force God's hand. By doing certain things, you can force God's hand. I have heard it said, evangelical Christians want a nuclear war so God will intervene. No, that's totally inconsistent with their way of thinking. Secondly, in teaching this class for several decades, some of the strongest resistance that I've encountered uh, from really good students are those people who are Holocaust-centric, that is, they see Jews in terms of the Holocaust, and to those people, any, uh, any criticism of Israel seems very ominous and threatening. The Jewish nationalist narrative is rooted in destruction and resurrection. This myth consists of a series of disasters at the hands of non-Jews. The destruction of the first temple, the destruction of the second temple, dispersion of the Jewish people after the uprising against Rome, the Inquisition, various expulsions and massacres, the Holocaust, and then national resurrection. According to this narrative, Jewish survivors came out of the death camps of Europe to create a Jewish state. European countries, including the United States, were driven by guilt at their involvement, often covert, in the Holocaust and agreed to create a Jewish state in Palestine. This was logical and just for several reasons. First, Palestine was Jewish land, Eretz Israel, the land of Israel, promised by God. Second, Jews had always lived there. Third, Jews had always known they were truly a part of a Jewish nation destined to return collectively to their land. Fourth, the Palestinians are not truly a national people. They are people, Syrians, Egyptians, Jordanians, who sneaked into the country once the Jews began to make the land usable, but they are not truly a people in a sense of a national group. They should return to their various homelands. A variant of this is that the British created a Palestinian state in Jordan and the Palestinians should go there to live. Benjamin Netanyahu sometimes uh, uh, took that position. Fifth, those Arabs in Palestine were backward and had no commitment to the land. They never developed it, they never developed themselves, and they never even governed themselves. Sixth, when the Arabs were offered a portion of Palestine in 1947, they refused, insisting that the Jews be massacred and expelled. Seventh, the Arabs still do not accept the right of Jews to live as a national people in Palestine. Therefore, no negotiation is possible. Note, Israelis disagree on some of these points. The Oslo Accords, signed by the labor government of Yitzhak Rabin, but never accepted by those on the Israeli right, recognized the Palestinians as a national people with a recognized leadership. The Arab national nationalist narrative, the third of these, is that the Europeans turned on their Jewish citizens and solved their problem of anti-Semitism, not by internal policy changes, but by displacing them and dumping them into the Arab world. To Arabs, this is a double racism, a double anti-Semitism, given that this word applies both to Jews and Arabs. Um, by the way, I recommend that teachers seek a different word since this one has different meanings for different people. I try to avoid it myself because it's uh, more confusing than helpful at times. Jewish nationalism, Zionism, is a false ideology because it is rooted in a divine religion. 
This is the Arab narrative. God sends prophets to all people, not just to some, so that the very idea of a nationalist movement rooted in revelation is false. Historically, Jews, Muslims, and Christians lived in Palestine in peace, but the Zionists created a tension that has never existed before. In 1948, they moved to expel the Palestinians and create their states. The Arabs offered to let them live in Palestine with their own self-government, but they refused. Having created their state, they still have a long-term goal of expanding their borders from the Nile to the Euphrates. That is a reference to Genesis 15:18, in which God says to Abraham, I give to you and your descendants this land from the Wadi of Egypt, that's, uh, that's basically the Nile, uh, to the great river, the river Euphrates. This is the so-called Nile to Euphrates promise. Offered compromises, they refuse. Given the option of accepting Palestinians as a legitimate nation with a right to live in their own land, they refuse. They never had any serious intention to work out a historic compromise. These are the three major narratives that, that students come into class holding. It's interesting, I have, them write on, I have them write a reaction to this, and they say, you know, I fell into one of those. They recognize themselves. So this is a very good learning exercise to recognize where you are coming from that makes it possible for you to move from myth and memory into history, that is the study of what actually is going on, being political science in this case, not history. Another useful concept is that of received knowledge. This consists of those things that everyone knows to be true, so there's not even a reason to check on the facts. It seems that a key to effective teaching and to effective learning is to get students to recognize that their received knowledge and the narratives written into their heads are socially constructed, to use a common phrase. If this sounds subversive, it is, although in a benign way. Unlearning is often a first step in learning. Reassessing what we thought we knew is a good first step. Start, starting with some received knowledge and comparing it with facts is always effective. I often point out two common bits of received knowledge for the sake of those students who are Jewish or Arabic, as many of my students are. Many Jews believe that in 1948 there were broadcasts from Arab radio stations urging Palestinians to flee to other countries so Arab armies could finish their work, i.e. the destruction of the Jews. Scholars have not been able to find any evidence of such broadcasts. Its repetition seems to serve up a reassuring story about why there are Palestinian refugees who bear moral responsibility for their own plight. Likewise, many Arabs believe that the shape on the Israeli penny is a map of the Middle East, reflecting the Nile to Euphrates aspirations of the Jewish state, and that the two white stripes on the Israeli flag are the same two rivers. In fact, the shape on the coin is a reproduction of an earlier coin from an ancient Hebrew kingdom, and the two stripes represent the Jewish religion, that is, the prayer shawl. Embracing these stories seems to reassure their adherence of the ill will of the, of the other side and to justify mobilization against it. Former Senator George Mitchell was sent out in 2001 to figure out why the Al-Aqsa Intifada had happened. He noted in his Mitchell report of 2001 
that the perceptions of Israelis and Palestinians about the explosion of violence in September of 2000 showed remarkable parallels. They are murdering our children. They never wanted peace, but were just maneuvering for time. They were building up their forces even as they talked. They, they, they. Both sides were saying the same thing and using even the same vocabulary. The debate is often immersed in what I call the rhetoric wars, an effort to impose an interpretation, to shout down those who disagree, to engage in personal attacks, to question motives or integrity, or to discredit those who advocate alternative policies or alternative interpretations. Rhetoric warriors duel over words trying to overwhelm their perceived opponents. Dueling with rhetoric warriors is like playing with drugs. There's only one way to win, and that is not to play the game. As teachers, we must provide our students with alternative paradigms, analytical structures, or alternative ways of analyzing, not against myth or narrative, but beyond it. Those who are teachers are not trying to impose an interpretation, but to educate. We want to free students of preconceptions and give them different ways of understanding and assessing conflict. We also want to humanize inhumane situations. Needless to say, when you are asking people, especially young people, to reassess their received knowledge and the dominant thinking within their communities, you have to tread with care. The goal is to help students think, not make them defensive or upset. Still, with narratives so powerful, the rhetoric so volatile, and the stakes so high, it is not enough just to point out the facts. It is necessary to work for new thinking and reassessment. And I'm proud to say that after several decades of teaching this class, my students have shown themselves very willing to think about these issues. That's the end. Bye-bye.